Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. Warm monochrome shades bathe Casablanca, a film full of optimism and redemption. Rick's Café is illuminated at nighttime by an intermittent shaft of light from the airport control tower. The Hungarian-born director Michael Curtis created scenes where love, idealism and heroism triumph over fascism and the Vichy French of Morocco. The sheer lightness of a very young Ingrid Bergman playing opposite a seasoned Humphrey Bogart brings the promise of love and hope in that warm climate. At the end of the film, a windswept runway awaits Bergman's character Ilse and her husband Victor Laszlo, as they prepare to board a plane to Lisbon and on to America. Then Bogart utters those immortal lines, We'll always have Paris, he tells Ilse. We didn't have. We lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. In the monochrome past, even when lovers must part, love conquers all. I knew another colourful Rick's Café, On Sunday mornings in Brussels, through the 90s to the early 2000s, Rick's Café Américain on Avenue Louise served Sunday brunch to homesick Americans, locals and our English-speaking crowd. Eggs Benedict, bacon, toast, pancakes and endless refills of coffee. Believe it or not, I'd never come across the notion of brunch before. Just as in Rick's in Casablanca, the international crowd were a mixed bag of expats making their way in Brussels. Belgium had been at the epicentre of the First World War. The Brussels streets and roundabouts we navigated were named for American and British heroes of the next one, Roosevelt, Montgomery, Churchill, and now it was home to the European Commission, NATO and many multinational businesses. Living in Brussels required a linguistic sensitivity as it has two official languages, French and Flemish. Most taxi drivers and waiters, for example, spoke French, but people from Flanders might get annoyed if you address them in French. English, I found, was the safest lingua franca. The café, which opened in 1977 and lasted 30 years, was in an Art Nouveau townhouse with a classic décor of carved wood, high ceilings, beautiful period fireplaces and a big high bar at one end of the main room. Black and white photos of Bogart and company decorated the walls. An enclosed terrace out the back and a converted coach house added to the magic. The owners, Jack and Fiona Lowe, introduced American grill-style seafood cuisine for light eaters, a novelty for many locals and European expats, and steaks and burgers for the meat eaters. It was also a good place to just come in for a beer. Avenue Louise, with its fine townhouses and chestnut trees leading up to the Bois de la Cambre, was built during the reign of King Leopold I in the late 19th century. The Bois, an oasis of trees and grass, with a countryside feel but surprisingly close to the centre of town, extends into the Forêt de Soigne, an unspoiled forest of mainly beech trees that stretches south across thousands of acres. You could cycle from our house off Avenue Louise almost entirely through forest and countryside all the way to the site where Napoleon met his Waterloo in 1815. Napoleon had emerged out of the post-revolutionary chaos of France, 
Traces of that revolution are also to be found in Brussels. Jacques-Louis David's famous 1793 painting The Death of Marat is held in the Royal Museum of Fine Arts. David, a friend and admirer of the revolutionary leader Jean-Paul Marat, created the painting in the days following his assassination. Marat lies dead in a bath, his head wrapped in bandages, a knife wound in his chest, in one hand a letter, in the other a quill pen, on the floor a bloodied knife. This so-called Pieta of the Revolution is considered to be David's masterpiece. As one critic said, Marat became an instant political martyr while the painting became a symbol of sacrifice in the name of the French Republic. Not far from the spot where Rick's Café was, just off Avenue Louise is another oasis, the Abbey de la Cambre, founded by the Cistercians in 1196 and set in beautiful gardens. Much of it was destroyed during the wars of religion in the 16th and 17th centuries, but it was rebuilt in the 18th century in the French style that you can see today. And the simple Abbey Church, dating back 600 years, still survives. Inside it you will find Albrecht Bout's painting of the Mocking of Christ. The Abbey was occupied by the German army in both world wars, and at the time that Bogart's character Rick was running his café in Casablanca, number 347 Avenue Louise was Gestapo headquarters in Brussels. The underground basement walls are marked with messages, goodbyes and signatures of resistance fighters and Jewish prisoners. Our Brussels Rick's Café was situated just across the road at number 344. I'm sure Rick and Ilse would both have appreciated the irony. Sing it, Sam. You must remember this A kiss is just a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers woo They still say I love I can still picture him Leaning over the gate Watching the world His elbows patched with leatherette, never stirred, as I tried to bring my steering wheel back under control. Taking both sides of a thankfully wide stretch of road, I'd no idea what had happened. Back in the early 1980s, there were no mobile phones, so when I managed to stop and take a breath, it was this wise Kilkenny man who nodded at me. Shaking, I stepped out and circled my precious silver fiesta. Just moments before I'd been sailing from Duro towards Ballyragget, when bang, there was a sound like a gunshot and I was swerving all over the road. Now, as I examined what was left of my front tyre, I saw the ribbons of rubber, evidence of my blowout. I was mad for road back then. Some might say I still am but my first year of skirting the length of the country in my cherished Ford Fiesta gave me such independence. 
I zipped cross-country from the sunny southeast to either Portumna or Strokestown every other weekend. Out of college, first job, and acquiring my WZR779 stamped my passport into adulthood. It didn't matter that my driving skills were pretty basic. A week of daily practice on the winding road from Ferrybank to New Ross had me all set for adventure. An Ordnance Survey map was my front seat passenger, but it didn't stop me going around Kilkenny City in circles on my first long trip or struggling to find the road to Ballymahan while navigating Tullamore. Those were the days when L-plate drivers could drive alone. My L stood for learner, lovestruck, lazy or lucky, depending on the journey I was undertaking. Luck saved a wee dog I'd glanced off on my way to Mullinavat one evening. Distraught and feeling guilty, I sought out the pup's owner, took his pup to a vet and returned it home again, missing my badminton match. Every time I took that road, that same pup chased my car and I realised this was all a game for the dog and that he had many a shaving on that road. Look too at a few minutes to midnight outside Ballinasloe brought a knight in a white collar to help me change a puncture as I drove west on Christmas Eve. My boot had to be emptied and the priest was bemused by the number of parcels. You must have a big family, he murmured as he rummaged for wrench and jack. I nodded meekly. I hadn't the courage to tell him that the gifts were for my neighbours, nieces and nephews, as well as my immediate family. I felt such generosity that first Christmas earning money. But the bundles of gifts looked rather joyless as I tried to shelter the poor priest kneeling in a puddle to change my tyre. I often wonder how he explained his drenched and dishevelled look at the altar of Midnight Mass. From then on, I learned more than just driving. My Uncle Peter, who gave my car the once-over with his mechanic's eye, was delighted to see my interest in the workings of the car. So when on other trips the head gasket gave trouble, I had the water ready to top up to get me to the garage beside me in Ferrybank. There, in his gallery of ratchets and bolts, the tang of oil, the language of engines, I watched with awe as Don Martin read the engine with his mechanic's braille. A cloth in his hand he rubbed here, dipped there, topped up oil, gauged the water and prepared my pride and joy for our next adventure. I am sure he was bemused by my eagerness to head for Dunmore East or Passage West for a short spin or to hit for home through the Midlands, discovering villages like Ballymore, Noctofer, Castletown Gagan, Moivore and that great little chipper in Kilbegan. With a well-tuned engine blessed on each visit to my mother, my fiesta and I became faithful friends. From the moment I sat behind the wheel in Boland's garage in Waterford to the handing over of the keys when, as a mother-to-be, I needed to upgrade to a four-door, my whizzer gave me endless miles of satisfaction. Today I can find the spot on Google Maps where that man tracked my blown-out car. 
that gate is still there. But I am certain that man is long gone. But I'm sure over a pint in Ballyragget in 1983, he retold the event in his own style, how he helped me, heading off on his tractor to get my tattered wheel replaced that day. When I heard that Ford has discontinued production of its Fiesta, the memory key whisked me into the seat of my WZR779 and called to mind all who guided, minded and maintained my Fiesta. Chocolate. Of all the possible pubescent allergies to develop, why did it have to be chocolate? Quite suddenly, at the age of 14, I developed migraines, molten lava that erupted behind the forehead to pool behind my eyes for days. Migraine has three well-known dietary triggers, cheese, red wine and chocolate. I didn't like cheese, had not yet succumbed to alcohol, and that left only chocolate. A regimen of chocolate cake, mousse, yoghurt, milkshakes, ice cream, cornflakes and bars concertinaed into a crashing halt. Who could have known? No chocolate, no migraine. It was simple, except for the sweet tooth that remained. Now, if you go looking for sweet things without chocolate, you realise that 90% of the offering is suddenly unavailable to you. Chocolate is everywhere, a delivery mechanism for sugar and vice versa. So, I turned to marzipan, custard and toffee as substitutes, the latter being the most versatile. The king of toffee is unquestionably fudge, whose basic ingredients are caramelised sugar, butter and milk. But within that family, the dolce de leche or condensed milk variety monopolised the superlatives. Long before my chocolate downfall, a wondrously crumbly and gooey Polish fudge called krufki had hopped onto my tongue and into my life. It means little cows in English and comes in a yellow wrapper with a picture of a Silesian cow. Unusually, the ends are folded to points which are not turned down, like other sweet wrappers. These sweets have existed since 1921 and are so well known that they confuse Google Translate. I recently translated a popular pre-war song that my grandparents sang and, unconvincingly, the green fields were filled with fudge. Poetic, but wrong. Felix Pomorsky established a sweet factory in Poznan in 1921, eventually employing 40 people and producing 200 varieties of confectionery. During the war, he was ousted from the management of the company by the Germans. Post-war, Felix moved to Milanovec to re-establish the business, 
but the communist state nationalized the company and the quality of the products declined. After Felix's death in 1963, his son Lezek took over. Now, the greatest struggle was with communist bureaucracy and, significantly, the inability to set the sale price of their product. Teetering on bankruptcy, legend has it that they were saved by a local apparatchik with a sweet tooth, who relented and gave permission for the management to raise their prices. Today, the factory is run by Felix's grandson, Peter, who employs 15 staff. For my mother, Monica, Krufki featured regularly in her infancy in Poland. For in 1944, Monica was forced to hide under a table all day while her mother went out to work. The five-year-old was warned never to come out and, under no circumstances, go to the window or a German monster would devour her. For companionship, she had a book, a doll and a potty. Her daily reward for being good was presented to her by her mother, two krufki, to be sucked, savoured and slowly swallowed. To train an infant not to cry out and to stay in one place on pain of death is such a disturbing proposition. But for Jews hiding in Nazi-occupied Poland, choices had to be made that are unimaginable today for you or me. Monica was an especially self-contained child. She did not always rush out to greet her mother the moment she returned home in the evening. She would lose herself in mythical fantasies she'd created with dragons and princesses. One day, Monica did venture to the window. When she did, a sniper's bullet singed her hair and buried itself in the wall opposite. What Monica feared most was her mother's wrath at such flagrant disobedience, without any understanding that she had come within a hair's breadth, literally, of losing her head. She had learned by then that obedience was neither an advisory nor an optional extra. It was the code you accepted to try to live for one more day. But even the most disciplined five-year-olds rebel, overwhelmed by the gravitational pull of curiosity. And, of course, her daily prize of two krufki might now be in jeopardy. Her mother was, of course, relieved within her anger at Monica's recklessness. They had come so far together in this hellscape, she would not lose her daughter this way. Thirty years later in London, Annie, our housekeeper, came home one day clutching a bag of sweets she'd just bought. Monica put her hand in the bag, a lucky dip, and pulled out a small rectangle with a yellow wrapper and the logo of a cow. It was exactly as she remembered it. She was floored, subjugated once again to the stricture of Warsaw kindergarten etiquette. Rules made especially for her by those who loved her and imposed by strangers who didn't. She could not believe her eyes. A bag of golden nuggets snatched from nostalgia? No. This unexpected reappearance of her once daily reward for obeying her mother grabbed her by both ankles and upended her. In a winking eye, the constructs that Monica had assembled to redefine her identity as a well-groomed English lady disappeared like a desert mirage. This new facade had been erected so painfully during the period she herself describes as her second childhood.
but by the time she married, she could dip automatically between a world governed by fear and suspicion that was the habitat of her parents and the sunnier life of a new family and motherhood. Occasionally, a spark would fly from the vault of memories she kept locked away, a reminder that her early childhood would never abandon her. From now on, Krufke would only ever taste bittersweet. Niech skrzypce łkają, czarowne tango grają za twoją grę. Dam życie swe. In recent times I hit 70. Not the speed, the age, unfortunately. Or fortunately. There are two ways of looking at a milestone like this. The first is to wonder how it happened. Just yesterday I was 50. The day before that I was 28. And there must be something in the fact that I still have nightmares about my Leaving Cert maths exam. It can't be all that long ago. The second way is to be glad that I was here to welcome the day. I had a bit of a do for family and friends, and in the days leading up to the celebration, I inevitably got to thinking about other birthdays. And the one which floated to the top of the memory pond was my seventh birthday, the earliest I can remember. My mother was 48 when I was born, so by the time I'd reached my seventh birthday, she was 55, teaching in a national school involved in all kinds of voluntary organisations, running a home and keeping three children in full-time education and struggling with health issues. Some, any or all of these may have contributed to the fact that she informed me a week or so before the due date that I wouldn't be having a birthday party. Yes, there'd be a present and yes, there'd be a small cake, but no party. I was less than impressed. Our house was always a great place for birthdays and I didn't see why I should be denied my day of celebration and besides, the handful of boys that I'd want there would be sure to bring presents. So I took a unilateral decision and invited four of my classmates to the house for the birthday party that wasn't meant to be. I knew the after-school ritual and had worked out a timetable. I'd meet my mother in her room in the girls' school at ten past three. We'd walk to the church to do the Stations of the Cross. That would bring us to half three. She'd probably meet Miss Crosby in the church so I could add twenty minutes for the chat, taking us towards four o'clock. Then the fifteen-minute walk home, with the possibility of meeting someone along the road and another chat. Two days ahead of the festivity... I informed my guests that the party would be at five o'clock. On the day, I woke to a card and two presents. The school morning passed, but by lunchtime I could feel the nerves rising and the butterflies making tours of my stomach. 
I considered cancelling the invitations, but one of my guests informed me during lunch break that his mother had gone to the trouble of cycling to Carlo to get a present for me. The scales tipped back in favour of going ahead. I was in the yard of our house at five o'clock when the guests arrived, four of them together, each carrying a gift. My mother must have heard the hubbub because she appeared at the back door and the truth immediately dawned on her. She was gracious and, to her eternal credit, she produced lemonade, sandwiches and a Battenberg shop cake within 20 minutes. But the look on her face told me all I needed to know about the war that lay ahead. I don't remember or have chosen to forget the fallout from my outlawed invitations. But looking back in recent days and drawing on the lessons life has taught, I can only imagine the genuine reasons my mother would have had for not arranging that party in 1959. As a seven-year-old, none of those reasons would have made sense to me. My only concern was with the presence, the now long-forgotten presence. Sixty-three years later, I've been given the time and opportunity to wonder what it was that led my mother to not organising a party, and to realise belatedly that an afternoon of bedlam was obviously the last thing she needed in the house or in her life at that time. And that realisation is in itself a delayed but welcome present, for which I'm more than grateful.
unlike many Irish children of my generation, I was brought up to admire Winston Churchill, Britain's wartime leader. My father, although nationalist enough, always uttered his name with reverence, believing he had saved us as well as the British from the evil Hitler. Churchill's defiant orations, received at home in those perilous years, on our crackling telefunken wireless, had made a deep impression. All that might not have impinged on my childhood mind had I not had an unfortunate speech defect. This exposed me to teasing at school. Lysert, you speak like a baby, some boys told me hurtfully. Don't mind them, my father reassured me. Winston Churchill also has a lisp, and apart from James Dillon, he is the greatest orator in the world. To encourage me, my father got me recordings of Churchill's speeches. I listened to them over and over again, absorbing their rolling rhythm. I learned passages by heart and used phrases from them at school debates. Churchill became my unlikely hero. I was up at Cambridge when he died in January 1965, age 90. All England stood still in the week between his death and the funeral. Memories of his heroic life and British triumphs under his leadership were recited endlessly, making it a time of celebration rather than of sorrow. The fulsome enthusiasm of it was a welcome relief from the mocking mood of self-denigration that had gripped England in that dreary decade of decline. On the night of Churchill's death, that consummate stylist Harold Macmillan, the former Prime Minister, wound up the tributes on television. He looked even more doleful than usual as he peered out from the screen. None of us, he concluded, can be without a sense of personal loss that the greatest heart in England beats no more. Almost the only discordant voice came from Ireland. President de Valera said that Churchill might have been a great Englishman, but he had been a dangerous enemy of the Irish people. Twelve years previously, in 1953, the two men had met for the first time. Their lunch, held in 10 Downing Street, went well. Afterwards, Churchill told friends how much he liked the man. Dev was less forgiving, and his words spoken on the morrow of Churchill's death sounded ungenerous. First reports, happily not fulfilled, were that our government would not even send a minister to the funeral. I decided that I, at least, would keep faith and be there. I was up at six in the morning to be given a lift to London and joined the throngs lining the route of the state funeral. In a biting east wind beneath a steel-grey sky, we waited for hours on Ludgate Hill, just below St. Paul's Cathedral. We saw the leaders of 100 nations mounting the steps to Wren's magnificent building. Most striking was the tall, erect, 
solemn figure of Charles de Gaulle, President of France. For all their wartime rows, he was the Frenchman whom Churchill esteemed above all others. Meanwhile, the funeral procession wended its way along the ancient road to St. Paul's from Westminster Abbey, where the body had lain in state for three days and four nights. The route was lined with young soldiers, their heads bowed over their rifles in respect. The bands played old military tunes. Each minute we heard the distant echo of the ninety-gun salute, one for each year of Churchill's long life. The sailors, soldiers and airmen, in all their panoply, advanced past us, marching in measured rhythm. Then came the oak coffin, borne on an open gun carriage, pulled along by a phalanx of naval cadets. The chief male mourners and pallbearers, attired in top hats, followed, led by Churchill's ailing son Randolph, struggling uphill on foot. So quiet was the crowd about us at that moment that one heard only the crunching footsteps of the naval escort on the sanded road as they marched in step beside the gun carriage. In the awe and emotion it expressed, the hushed silence was more eloquent than any words and certainly more moving than the applause which has become commonplace at modern funerals. I shall never forget it. The tension subsided as Churchill's widow, his beloved Clemmy, and other female mourners followed in horse-drawn carriages. The silence was broken in our party when one of the girls turned to me excitedly and said, It makes you proud to be English, doesn't it? As an Irishman, I could not be quite that, but I was and remain to this day mighty proud to have been there. On this morning's programme, we heard Brunch at Ricks by Frank Kavanagh, Fiesta Moments by Noel Linsky. From the recent archive, Little Cows was by Oliver Sears, Hitting 70 by John McKenna, and A Young Irishman at Churchill's Funeral by Charles Lysett. The music was As Time Goes By from Casablanca, sung by Dooley Wilson, Every Day is a Winding Road by Cheryl Crow, Old Polish Tango by Vladislav Lidauer, sung by Olga Mileshtuk, and Haydn's Surprise Symphony, Second Movement, played by the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra, conducted by Nikolaus Arnoncourt. And the objects of love, Oliver Sears' exhibition telling the story of the family's experience of the Holocaust is on view today, its final day, at the State Apartments, Dublin Castle. See dublincastle.ie for more information. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. To listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE Radio Player or the programme website rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday hyphen miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.